Welcome to Holy Cow, a Cubs podcast. I'm your host, Sean Holland. Our guest on this episode is Sarah Sanchez, who writes on the blog Bleed Cubby Blue. She also has a podcast of her own, Cup of Cubby Blue, which, um, you know, you should be able to find the episodes on Bleed Cubby Blue, but um, her Twitter handle is BCB underscore Sarah. So you can follow her there. And, um, we had a pretty good discussion. We talked about uh, the outlook for the Cubs in the second half, a little bit about their dramatic win on Friday, and of course we defended Wilson Contreras and his, you know, really bad rap he gets on framing. I know if you've listened to this podcast before, this is not the first time I've done a Wilson Contreras defense, and it will not be the last time. Um, anyway, without further ado, here is Sarah. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, hey, thanks have, for having me. Glad to have you on Holy Cow. Um, <laughs> so we've got one game into the second half. We're taping this right after the Cubs won a fairly dramatic game against the Pirates. They were uh, up 3 nothing. Stuff went kind of haywire, but then they scored a late run and won the game. So uh, since there's only one game in the second half, I'll just ask you, uh, what are you thinking about for the second half? Do you feel good about the team or bad? So a couple of things. I wrote about this earlier this week because there were far too many days without Cubs baseball in a row. So I had lots of time to delve into fan graphs and take a look at the offense, take a look at the pitching, um, and just sort of see where this team is at. I mean, the first thing that I want to say is that the Cubs under Joe Madden have really been a second-half team. And so I am optimistic that they will continue to be a second-half team. If you go back and look at what they've done since 2015. Their win percentage in 2015 through 2017 was well over 660 for each of those years in the second half. Last year, not so much. You know, they kind of struggled a little bit in September with that really long stretch of games. And and I am nervous about that because, frankly, they have another long stretch of games like that in September this year. Um, But last year, even with that, it was 571. And you have to imagine that if this team plays close to 600 ball in the second half, they're going to have a really good shot at holding on to the top of this division, even though it's been really close. So I'm optimistic that they will do that. But there are some warning signs. And one of those warning signs was really evident today, which is that the bullpen just hasn't been as locked down as Cubs fans would like it to be. And (laughs) Pedro Strope, I love you. You're awesome. You're one of the greatest relievers in the history of the Chicago Cubs. And that ball went so far. You cannot throw a pitch like that to Starling Marte. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was one of those things too. It's like, you know, where Strobe has just been slightly off this year. I mean, he had the two hamstring injuries, so maybe that's a part of it. But, you know, someone was on, I, maybe it's Matt Clapp, somebody on Twitter was talking about, maybe Jared Willis was talking about that his velocity is just down a couple ticks this year. And you wonder, is he still hurt or what? But he's just not quite the same lockdown guy he's been the last couple of years. Yeah, I have. I'm not sure if it's velocity. That's actually a great idea. I might take a look at that. The thing that I've noticed more with Strope is that it's been pitch location and control, and it just feels like you know he'll get a couple of outs and then he'll miss on a pitch, and his response to missing is to just groove one. 
that he'll prove a pitch that he should never throw to a major league hitter and just pays for it every single time. Uh, I hope he's not hurt. I love Pedro Strope. I, you know, funnily enough, when the schedule came out at the start of the year, the first thing I did was make sure I had a ticket to Pedro Strope bobblehead day. (laughs) So I was just like, that's going to be awesome. But he needs to fix whatever is slightly off because the Cubs cannot continue. Can have a three run lead in the eighth inning and bring in your setup man and just have it vanish. Yeah, it's not, it's not good. And I mean, I'm on the record, like Pedro Strope is one of the greatest Cubs relievers of all time, but we, we, we will say that, yeah, he's not quite right this year. So um, I will talk about someone who is right and showed it again today. Um, Jason Hayward. And he's finally starting to look like the guy the Cubs gave this big contract to, and it's pretty good to see. I have been a fan of Jason Hayward through all of his struggles. I am very on the record as being team Jason Hayward. I think I said at one point in time that even if the only thing that he ever does is give that speech during the rain delay in 2016, it's fine. (laughs) He's earned all of the money that the Cubs owed him, but it does look like in 2019 that he is going to do much more than that. And that's great to see. He's not quite on the pace that he was on during his really outstanding five plus war season with the Cardinals in 2015, but he was worth 1.9 war or 1.3 war. Let me pull that up really fast to double check myself. 1.4 war in the first half. And he's, everything looks better. He's, his ops is over 800. He's hitting the ball less to the pull side and really driving it opposite field and center more often, which I think is giving him, he's beating the shift basically, which is great. Um, and he had a nice bit of hitting today and he's the reason that the, you know, one of the reasons that the Cubs won this game. So that's outstanding. Yeah. And now let's talk about another guy who, for some reason, I guess the internet is always going to be like this with this guy with uh, Chris Bryant, where they never think he's doing good. You know, he's a bust. He's not living up to the hype. But he's having, like, by all, all the numbers, he's ahead of even his MVP season. And he's doing really well, and especially the last week he's doing well. But Chris Bryant just never gets enough credit for how solid of a player he actually is. I think it's because he's just not particularly flashy. I, I, I mean, and I also think it, at least this year it's because Cody Bellinger and Christian Yelich are both out of their minds. And so Chris Bryant and Javier Baez, for that matter, are both duplicating the seasons that they had where they were in the MVP conversation. I mean, Chris Bryant, like you said, has been better than he was in 2016. Javier Baez is basically having the same season that he had to start off 2018. And neither of them is really close to the MVP conversation this year because what Cody Bellinger and Christian Yelich are doing is out of control. But yeah, KB is having a great season, and I don't understand... (laughs) At all, the people, mostly on Twitter, I think we follow most of the same people who are mad about him not being clutch. I don't even, look, I get that clutch is a stat, like you can measure how somebody does in certain situations, but it's not a predictive stat, right? It's not something, there's not something Chris Bryant is doing that prevents him from putting up those power numbers in those situations. And so I think people should really appreciate what we have in Chris Bryant. He's one of the best third basemen 
in the game and he's a third baseman with so much versatility that he can really provide um, plus defensive options and other parts of the park and plays a lot of right field, a lot of left field gives Joe Madden ways to bring David Bodie into the lineup. Who's also having a pretty solid year. So yeah, KB y'all need to lay off KB on Twitter. (laughs) I think that he's doing, he's doing quite well. And if we can get another second half out of KB, like we've seen so far, I think that would be great. Yeah, and it's one of those things, too, you brought up with uh, Yelich and Bellinger. Like, if you look at Freddie Freeman and Josh Bell, would almost other years might be, like, runaway MVPs, and they're not even in the conversation because of how good Bellinger and Yelich are. Totally. Yeah, they're not even – we don't even talk about that, right? I mean, Josh Bell got a little bit of love with the home run derby stuff. Um, Freddie Freeman, as far as I can see, outside of Braves chatter, <laughs> is getting no love for the season he's had. So uh, hat tip to Miller Park and Christian Yelich and what Cody Bellinger is doing. But that doesn't mean what Chris Bryant or Freddie Freeman or Javi Baez or any of these other players who are in the top 10 in F4 are doing is bad. It means that there are two players who are having historic years. Yes. And I have, by the way, for the record, made several attempts to get Sarah Weinstein Weinstein on the podcast to talk about her, uh, you know, Christian Yellitz lights at Miller Park conspiracy <laughs> theory, but she will not come on. But I'm trying. I, okay, so I don't know if it's the lights. I don't know what it is, but there is something going on there. These splits are ridiculous. I um, pull them up every now and again just to make sure that they're still ridiculous, and, and they are. <laughs> yeah, because normally you would think, like, Maybe a guy hitting at Coors Field would have that big of a gap, but nowhere else. Right. And it's, you know, there are other brewers who have, who, who play better at home than they do on the road, <laughs> but nothing like what Christian Yelich is doing. What Christian Yelich is doing, for those of you who haven't looked it up, at home versus on the road. At home, he is basically the reincarnation of like Mickey Mantle or Babe Ruth. <laughs> and away, he's just like, a slightly above average, pretty nice ball player. <laughs> so he's hit 31 home runs. 21 of them have been at home. Uh, he's batting 294 on the road and 373 <laughs> at Miller Park. And he's slugging uh, one sec. He's slugging um, 559 away, which is nice, but he's slugging 896 at Miller Park. Like those are not little differences. <laughs> Something yeah, up. Something's up, but I don't know what it is. But um, I guess we'll move back onto the Cubs since a little sidetracked there is Christian Yelich. But Fair enough. Uh, so one promising thing, which, of course, at this point, I don't know if you ever – the inconsistency is, is such that you never want to believe. But you, Darvish, probably his best, other than maybe that Dodger game earlier, earlier this season, probably his best outing as a Cub. Should we feel good or is it just you worried that he's going to be – the next start will be inconsistent again. So my intellectual self wants to feel good about this. And I very much want good things for you, Darvish. But as I was, as I was looking back at the first half, one of the things that really jumped out at me with Cubs starting pitcher performances is that even with those starts that you Darvish has had that have been okay, he has not been good. There were 41 qualified starting pitchers in the first half or up to the all-star break. I guess it's slightly more than half of the season. And you Darvish was 41st <laughs> out of those pitchers. I'm, this is not one of those situations. And that's in the national league, by the way. So just the national league, but the, that's not great. 
that's pretty terrible. Um, the Cubs should be getting more from you, Darvish. I would love this to be, he's turned a corner. Everything's going to be great. His outings are going to include very few hits, very few walks and a lot of strikeouts. That's what the Cubs paid him for. And here's hoping he can get his first win at Wrigley field sometime in the second half. But at this point, I'm just kind of, I don't know. I I can't live and die by you. Darvish starts. (laughs) Yeah. That's it's pretty much. You want to just peg him as like the fifth starter right now. And, you know, just expect what you get from a fifth starter. Now, of course, oh. he's got incredible stuff. So that's the funny thing. If he ever did, if it ever did click for a stretch, he could be the ace. But for now, you just got to think of him as the fifth starter. And just if you get good starts from him, good. If not, he's the fifth starter. I mean, he is the fifth starter right now. And, you know, if Adbert Alzale came up for any amount of time and had – what he showed in his first two starts as opposed to the last one or his first two appearances. I guess one of them was not a start since he came in in relief of Tyler Chatwood. I'm not entirely sure he would be the fifth starter. He might be the sixth starter on this team. He's just, he's, he's a, he has not demonstrated the consistency for what his contract is now. Can he, I imagine he can, he's done it at different points in time during his career, I would love that point in time to be right now. That would be a huge boost to the Cubs in the second half. I'm just not entirely sure that that's going to happen. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't know either. We can't, it's one of those things you'd like to see, but you really can't count on. So um, we'll move on then to uh, Cubs bench, which is not good. I mean, the uh, got another bat today and struck out, but they did call up uh, Robel Garcia. Who's been pretty good so far. But, you know, they, they've got Ian Happ down in the minors. They're playing him at second base a little bit and stuff, giving him more versatility and a couple other bats down there. You think it's time for a little bit of a shakeup, maybe move out Descalzo and bring up somebody else, anybody, just to try? I, I understand why they're reluctant to do that because I think that some of the problems this team has been having have to do with their youth and have to do with the lack of clubhouse leadership. And that is one of the things Descalzo is here for. He's by all accounts, a great guy. He's had some experience on championship teams. I think that they thought they could bring him in and get more of a, you know, glue guy type of uh, presence from him than maybe they have. I think that the, I actually, and I know there's no way to measure this, which is kind of weird because I'm, I'm very much an analytics and stats person, but I actually think that the thing this team has missed more than anything is Ben Zobrist. If you look back at their record, um, when Ben Zobrist went on his extended leave, that is really when the slide started and that's when they started playing sub 500 ball. Uh, I don't know if Hap for Descalso fixes that. I think that Hap has been showing a much stronger at bat in AAA recently. I don't know that that's sustainable. Whatever it is they think Ian Hap needs to work on in Iowa, they're going to let him figure it all the way out. It's clear by now that they will look at other options before they try to interrupt whatever it is that they think he needs to be fixing. I am happy that Robel Garcia is there, if for no other reason than it appears that the Cubs finally have a person who can put the ball in the air with a runner on third and less than two outs in a baseball game. (laughs) So that made me incredibly happy today. Uh, Robel Garcia's bat seems to be as advertised. He does strike out a lot, but he's been hitting the ball quite well. Um, And it's just a great story. You've got to love the story of a guy who was basically let go 
for nothing from the Indians in 2013 has been playing baseball in the Italian league and just happened to get spotted by a Cubs scout earning himself a call up. I mean, that is truly incredible. And the fact that he's been with the Cubs for five games now has been great. Uh, So I I want nothing but great things for Robel Garcia. And, you know, if he's going to strike out a lot, I'm cool with it as long as he's hitting the ball on the occasions that he's not striking out. Yes. And the funny story with that is too, is um, uh, I live in uh, Billings, Montana. So um, the minor league team of this is an affiliate of the Reds. And they had the number two pick in the draft a couple years ago, Hunter Green, who throws like 101 miles an hour. And he was the pitcher in that instructional league game that Robel Garcia hit the home run off of that the, yeah. that the, that the scout noticed. So that was uh, pretty cool. Because I said, but, and unfortunately for Hunter Green, he had Tommy John right after uh, spring training. So he's out for a year, but he's a highly touted Reds prospect. So that got um, Robel Garcia some attention. So that was pretty cool. That is really cool. I didn't realize that that's who he hit that off of, but they, the, you know, kudos to the Cub scouts. They seem to have found the player who was off pretty much everybody's radars who can do some damage and he's doing damage at a position where the Cubs could sorely use some offensive production. Second base has not exactly been a standout place for the Cubs offensively, including the time that Zobrist was taking his reps at second. He was not, um, hitting anywhere near his former selves to be clear. Yes, for sure. So, um, speaking of, you know, some of the bench problems, I'll ask you, uh, do you have anybody that you really like as a trade target that you've been looking at or whatever that you feel like you'd like the Cubs to take a run at? I'm so bad at the trade game because I never want to give anybody up. (laughs) And I'm always like, I have a hard time uh, figuring out the values for one player versus another player. But I I will say that I've liked the rumors surrounding Sogard. I think that that is a, that's a deal that could potentially make sense for the Cubs. I don't think they would need to give up too much to get him. I am a little bit skeptical that anything could come of the Whit Merrifield chatter. I just think that Kansas City wants a King's ransom for Merrifield, and I don't think the Cubs are willing to pay it. Uh, If anything, we've I've seen I've tended to notice that Theo likes to hold. He will not make a deal if he thinks that people are not valuing his players the same way he does, and sometimes that means he overvalues players (laughs) and will not trade them for people. But it does seem like he's just unwilling to do some of the deals that people have asked for in the past. And I imagine that whatever Kansas City is going to want for Whit Merrifield, the price is going to be much higher than the Cubs are able to or willing to pay. So keeping my eye on Blue Jays chatter more than anything. Um, But second base is really the position I'm most worried about. I am less concerned about adding another bullpen arm. I think that if... Brandon Morrow is truly going to be capable of pitching again for the Chicago Cubs this year. And Theo sounded optimistic about that about a week ago. That yeah. is, that's an incredible addition to the bullpen in the second half. Yeah, and There's nothing on the market that is like that. Yeah. And if I, I, the one thing I think for a bullpen guy that I really think they could use is a left-hander. They can get lefties out. Cause that's As opposed to a, Montgomery. Yes. <laughs> Because right now you have Montgomery who 
Cannot get a left-hander out to save his life. Kyle Ryan's okay, but he's better against righties, too. You've got Randy Rosario, who, well, I, I, I'm entertained by him. I don't, in a big game, I don't know if you'd want Randy Rosario as your loogie. So that'd be the one area that I'd want him for really pitching. I think they're pretty set right-handed, especially if Strope really rounds in the form. But, but yeah, and for hitters, I mean, maybe Castellanos, whose name I cannot say, for the Tigers. Castellanos. Yeah, it might be might be an intriguing, intriguing guy, but yeah, they just need one more hitter. I'm thinking, so maybe Sogard, maybe somebody else, but I I think they will make that move. I do like Nick Castellanos. I'm not entirely sure what the Tigers would want in exchange for him, but he he's a solid player. I actually. <laughs> random aside i play in a, a simulation league and got kind it, it was a well-established simulation league when i got put into a manager position <laughs> so i manage the tigers and i have learned a lot more about the tigers than i care to admit as a result <laughs> that's pretty good so you're the tiger tiger expert I'm not the tiger expert. I actually have friends who are the true tigers experts and I buy them beer so they can help me manage my team. Not like a fool. That's very good. Delegating of authority. <laughs> hey, it's worth a few beers here and there. That's right. Um, so no, I agree. Uh, a lefty guy who can get out lefties would be, would be nice. Although again, it gets down to what that costs and what you're willing to pay for it. And one of the, names has gotten bantered about there a lot is Will Smith. And I'm just not sure that the Cubs are going to be willing to pay whatever the giants want for Will Smith. Yeah. Will Smith, that that's going to be on the pricey end. So uh, there's a question I ask pretty much everyone on my podcast that I'm always curious about um, people's like fan stories. Like how did you become a fan of the Cubs? Like for me, it was kind of like I was, I was born into a family of Cubs fans. So I really didn't have a choice, but I'm always curious with everyone else, um, like their story about being a Cubs fan. So I'll ask you, how did you become a Cubs fan? Uh, so this is a, this is a little bit random and one that I'm sure a lot of people who grew up in the eighties and early nineties have, I grew up in rural Utah in this little tiny coal mining town called price. And so the only teams that I could watch regularly were the Cubs and the Braves. Um, but I grew up in a family that truly loves baseball. So my dad managed the Little League team, and then he managed the Babe Ruth team, and then the American Legion team. My brother played for all of those teams. I tried to sign up for Little League and was told that girls don't play baseball because Utah, but that's okay. I'm kind of mostly over it. Um, so I like kept score and paid attention and all of that type of stuff. But when I was a little kid, so four years old, uh, I the Saturday game was the Ryan Sandberg game, and... I, that was it. I was done. <laughs> I could watch the Cubs regularly. The Cubs were awesome. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But so I started watching the Cubs because Ryan Sandberg is awesome and I could watch them on WGN. And just by a lot of chance and circumstance, I wound up moving to Chicago in 2014 for work. And now I live five blocks from Wrigley Field and write about the Cubs for Bleed Cubby Blue, which is great. Wow. So yeah, I mean, come on, Utah. Let, let little girls play Little League. Come on. <laughs> they do now. I think that the rules were slightly, uh, the gender role rules were a lot more strictly enforced in the late 80s. Yeah. So now, I guess I'll ask you, do you have a favorite all-time player from when you were a kid? 
Oh, Ryan Sandberg. I mean, but not just because of the Sandberg game. I I have this thing for scrappy second baseman uh, and catchers. So pretty much every player that I have loved over time has played one of those two positions. My first jersey was actually a Giovanni Soto jersey. Um, I'm a huge fan of Wilson Contreras, as anybody who's following my Twitter account can attest. I love Javi Baez, who's now a shortstop, but you know, he, I was sort of team Javi when he was playing second base and couldn't get his reps at shortstop. Uh, my other team is my AL team is the Boston Red Sox, and I'm a huge Dustin Pedroia fan. So basically, second base and catcher is pretty much where it's at for me. And Ryan Sandberg was the original. I, I cried the day Ryan Sandberg retired the first time. I, I was inconsolable, could not figure out what I was supposed to do with myself. Yeah, that's funny, though, too, because um, when I was a kid, my favorite, I was all about catchers. So when I was like eight years old, my first favorite player was Rick Wilkins. Nice. Who had one year where he hit 30 home runs. And it was like, I thought he was the greatest. And then the next year, he hit like eight home runs, and that was it. But there's... I always tell people that I said that like a couple years ago on Twitter that I, I like um, Rick Wilkins and someone went, oh yeah, he was on steroids. And I was like, how dare you? <laughs> You're probably right, but still. That's awesome. Yeah. I um So Soto was kind of my flash in the pan player that I held out for way too long, but I sort of thought that he would, you know, he came out with such promise that I was just like, oh, this is going to be a thing. The Cubs have a young catcher who's super talented and can hit. And then it was not a thing. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the other thing. I was uh, on Twitter the other day. I was kind of having a debate, and you kind of were in, in the debate, too, about uh, Wilson Contreras and framing. That I don't like framing. Maybe it's because I like Wilson Contreras so much. I don't know, but I'm not. I just never have liked framing, but everyone's like, he's such a bad framer and it just makes me mad. But you were saying he's actually not as bad as even if you look at the numbers as people are saying he is. So my rant about framing, and I will try to keep this short so your show doesn't go two hours long, basically has to do with the following. I think that for most defensive stats, they are not as predictive or accurate as offensive stats. But for framing in particular, because it involves value judgments and it involves a lot of rotating parts, because you have to look at who the pitcher is, what types of pitches they throw, who the umpire is, and who the catcher is, it's really hard to assign who gets what amount of blame. And I think those things are really hard to control for and really difficult to keep to hold constant in ways that, like, you know, sprint speed is not, right? And so I think that framing stats generally don't tend to agree with each other very much. So it's hard to say, well, I'm going to use this one stat to determine whether somebody is good at framing or not. But I also think that Wilson gets a particularly bad rap here because he doesn't, whatever it is that baseball perspectives has determined (laughs) the value for framing is, they have weighted that stat to such a degree that they, that Wilson gets listed as one of like the five worst defenders in major league baseball. And I love numbers. I think they're useful for many things in terms of comparing players. There is no world where Wilson Contreras is one of the five worst defenders in all of baseball. That's, that's not true. So I was really excited when PJ Mooney of the athletic put out a story earlier this week, talking about how 
the Cubs look at the percentage of strike calls that Wilson gets, and it's among the league highest, and just see a disconnect between that and framing, which says to me that he might be missing things on the edge that are borderline, maybe because of who he catches. He catches a lot of pitchers that live on the corners and the edges, um, but that they don't see a, they think it's weird that he has terrible framing stats and a high strike strike call percentage. And I also think that is weird. The other piece of data that was out this week that I retweeted from somebody who was Scotland home uh, was a chart showing sort of a grid of where people get calls and where calls are missed. And even on that grid, and, and look, Wilson is not in the upper right quadrant of this grid that you where you would like him to be, but he's also not like it like lost in the lower left quadrant either. He's like sort of towards the axis, which indicates to me he is a slightly below average framer, not a bad framer. And when you consider all the other things he does that are above average in terms of, you know, his offensive contribution is off the charts compared to all but a handful of catchers in Major League Baseball. He has led the league in caught stealing and back picks for like the two full seasons that he's played. You kind of have to give a little bit on this whole framing debate. So framing drives me crazy. I think it is a skill that exists solely because we refuse to let robots call the strike zone like we should um, and I, it, I get really aggravated when people <laughs> look at that one number and assign so much weight to it that they make statements like, I can't remember who it was. And that's probably a good thing because I don't want to put anybody on blast on your podcast. But mm-hmm. somebody was out on Twitter a couple months ago talking about how there were 10 other cats. Wilson wasn't even one of the top 10 catchers in baseball. That's absurd. Like, I do you watch the game? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's just Paul. Really. That, that my my. I, I only mean this like half jokingly, but my conspiracy theory is always that framing was invented by the umpires union. So no one would blame umpires. So you could go like, Oh no, no, that that wasn't a bad blown call by the umpire. He caught it. He caught it poorly. It was a bad form on the catch. That's why we didn't get the strike. So then you can blame the catcher for a ball. that should be on the corner and they don't call it a strike, but that's my theory on that. Earlier this year, there was a, a pitch that Fangraphs devoted an entire article to, and it was the Pirates. Victor Caratini was actually the batter. I think the title of the article is Who Framed Victor Caratini? And it is Cervelli stealing a strike on a pitch that bounces in the dirt. And the pitch bounces and goes to the backstop, and Cervelli like raises his glove up into the strike zone, and it's called a strike, and it is clearly not a strike <laughs> because the ball is bouncing behind the catcher. Uh, that... I'm just not all that interested in that as a skill. I don't think that is a skill. I think that is clearly umpires missing things that they should be able to catch. And, you know, that's a pretty core component of their job to get balls and strikes correct. So if we have technology that can do that better and assist them in doing that, I think that we should use that and make framing obsolete. Not just because I want Wilson Contreras to be recognized as a premier catcher in Major League Baseball. But that would be a nice bonus. (laughs) be a great bonus but no my other my actual theory about wilson too is that i just think he's kind of he's an energy like he's got a lot of energy so he kind of it's not aesthetically as pleasing to watch him catch which i don't think affects the strikes and balls but if you're at home and you're watching it you can like a fan at home you go well he doesn't look he's moving around too much he's catching so the armchair people can go see he frames badly they're He's costing him strikes. I just think it's like, 
this idea started that if you don't move, that's framing, right? You stand, you stay still. You don't move your glove much. And Wilson's a very, you know, um, what do I want to say? Full of energy. And he sometimes kind of moves a little bit quickly to grab the balls and stuff. But I think, I think it's more of an aesthetic thing than anything. Well, he's certainly going to move around a lot. I mean, one, one theory that I've heard bantered around is that he, um, his his penchant for throwing runners out. So the fact that he's moving to throw guys out at second or at first uh, is harming his ability to frame the pitch because he's, you know, got such a quick move to first base or to second. I think that's possible too. I think I've heard um, Joe Girardi talk about that a little bit. Look, the bottom line is he does a great job. All of that energy, part of it goes to blocking a ton of pitches. He doesn't have a ton of pass balls relative to other catchers, and he does an incredible job. He'll, he's one of the only catchers that I've seen who will catch like a 15-inning game, the entirety of it, and be in the starting lineup the next day and play well. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if you're getting that and you're getting one of the top 20 bats in the major leagues, you, you can live a little bit on not terrible framing, just slightly below average framing. Yes, exactly. Um, so that, that's just, that's the end of our defensive uh, Wilson Contreras. <laughs> also but, team Wilson, because Wilson is awesome. That's right, he is. And honestly, I think that's a pretty good final question. So I'll just ask you then uh, to do a little plug-in for yourself and say what you've got going on and stuff, and you write for Bleak Cubby Blue, but I'll let you do your little pitch. Oh, cool. Thanks. Um, so if you're looking for my stuff, you can find my writing on bleedcubbyblue.com, which is part of the SB Nation family of team sites. If you're more of a podcast type and you have additional time to listen, I also co-host a podcast with my friend Andy Cruz Vanasek called Cup of Cubby Blue. You can find us by searching for Bleed Cubby Blue wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. Um, and then you can also find me on Twitter at BCB underscore Sarah or at cup of cubby blue and you can follow all of my thoughts on why framing is silly and why the cubs are awesome and how i never gave up on jason hayward on twitter all right that sounds good well uh thank you for coming on my podcast absolutely thanks for having me as always you can follow me on twitter at sth85 uh you know you can follow the subscribe to the podcast on itunes Just look for Holy Cow, a Cubs podcast, and you can like and subscribe. And, you know, give me a review, like five stars if you want. If I did badly, give me fewer stars. Uh, You can give me a review, too, you know, you anything you want to improve on the podcast or anything. uh, Just let me know. And until we have our next episode, thank you, as always, for listening.